everyone. On June 8th, 2018, uh, the world was stunned by the death of Anthony Bourdain, uh, finding out that he had committed suicide. I was sitting in a company meeting when I found out, and I just remember that uh, it was one of the saddest pieces of information and, and, and moments in my life. He was a, he was a, a true uh, hero to me and somebody that I admired very much and had um, uh, some, some weird connections to him that I was to find out about uh, uh, throughout my journey in life um, by a few things that he had actually sent me over the years, although I have to admit I've, I never met the man or nor have I ever spoken to him. But as time went on and people were healing from it, uh, Lori Wolever was busy uh, writing uh, a book about him that, that explains so much about him and about his life. And I've had the, the immense pleasure of interviewing her and talking to her about uh, Tony and the amazing life uh, that he lived. Let me just tell you a little bit about her. Lori Wolover is a writer and editor and spent nearly a decade assisting Anthony Bourdain with whom she co-authored Appetites, a cookbook and world travel and a reverent guide. And she has written about food and travel for the New York Times, GQ, Food and Wine, Lucky Peach, Savour, uh, Descent, Roads and Kingdoms, and others, and has worked as an editor at Culinaire and Wine Spectator. Her latest book, though, Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography, provides an unprecedented behind-the-scenes view into the life of Anthony Bourdain from the people who knew him best. So without any further ado, I really hope you enjoyed this interview. It meant a lot to me. She is an amazing person, and have a look. Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Lori, welcome to the, welcome to the show. It's a really pleasure to meet you. Um, I'm a huge fan. Like you did an amazing job on the books, by the way. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. Absolutely fantastic. I just want to show everybody um, uh, Bourdain, the definitive oral biography uh, by you. And it's absolutely fantastic. And you also did world travel, correct? That's right. Yes, that right. was authored. Yes. Now, was this, did you start this before Tony passed away? Was this the... Yes. Yeah. We, we did get started on it together before he died. It was probably three or four months before he died, when we really started working on it in earnest. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get that far into the process before he died. So uh, the, the book looked quite different. Uh, the finished product was quite different than what we had originally set out to do, which we had, you know, we had hoped to have a number of original essays by Tony in the book. And uh, he just didn't get time to do that before he died. And so there are a number of original essays written by other people who had uh, relationships with Tony. Gotcha. Okay. How did you originally meet him? So in 2002, I had been working as Chef Mario Batali's assistant for a couple of years. Uh, Mario and Tony became friends just by virtue of living in New York, being chefs and having a certain media profile. So uh, Tony 
asked Mario if he could recommend someone to help him with recipe editing and testing for his first cookbook, which was called Anthony Bourdain's Layal Cookbook. This was about two years after Kitchen Confidential was published. And Mario recommended me because I had done that type of work with him as his assistant on two books. So Tony hired me for that job sight unseen just based on Mario's recommendation. So that was when I first met Tony was in 2002 uh, and we worked on that book project together for about 18 months and the book came out in 2004. And then it was about five or six years later when I reached out to him and a number of other people saying, I'm looking for part-time work. I had been working as a magazine editor, but I had had a baby and I was kind of looking for a different uh, pace of work. And I reached out to Tony and, and said, you know, I'm looking for part-time work. Here's what I can do. If you hear of anything, just please keep me in mind. And he wrote back right away and said, actually, my assistant's leaving. And is that something that you would consider doing? And uh, I thought about it for a couple of seconds and said, yes. Uh, <laughs> just knowing what a great guy he was, knowing, you know, the opportunity that it was to work with someone like him. Uh, it was certainly a a change in my career path from having been an, an editor and a writer, but I knew that it would be a really great opportunity. I had a very interesting experience that I think it was with Tony. I, I can't prove that it was Tony, mm -hmm. um, but it was a very, it was a very odd thing. I'd always been a fan ever since kitchen confidential came out and I loved his stuff. Never missed, never missed watching his show. Uh, me and my ex-wife, we would, we would watch it all the time. And most of my friends too, the people that, that work for work with me and my company, everybody was devastated. And we were sitting in a company meeting the morning that we heard and people just broke out in tears. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was so, it was so hard to hear that, that he, that he was gone. I mean, he was like a friend without even knowing him, you know, yeah. but I had, I had this interesting thing happen, um, probably around, uh, probably around 2006, I would think. I'm pretty sure it was like 2006. I got a, I got a book in the mail. And I, th if I remember right, I think it was medium raw. It might've been the book that came out before that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure it was stolen. That's why I don't, I don't remember exactly which one it was, but somehow or another, he came across my work and he wrote down, this helped me in a very dark time. Thank you. And he signed it, Tony. And I was like, this is, this cannot be real. Now there was no contact information, nothing. And that's, and that's how I received it. And I didn't find out until after I read medium raw that he was having such a hard time when he was going, I guess he was going through his first divorce when, when, when him and Nancy uh, split up and he was in the Caribbean islands and he was talking about being suicidal <laughs> on a regular basis which I often thought was very interesting how much he actually talked about suicide openly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was almost a shtick uh, apart from what you're referencing in, in medium raw, where he wrote about it with some serious intent and, and uh, you know, it was, it was not meant to be comedy by any means, but in his day to day, uh, you know, being on television in his writing and his conversations, it was this like shorthand joke almost, uh, just to sort of, to get to a hyperbolic place to describe 
a disappointing hamburger or a, a strange encounter with us with someone or you know it, it was and i think a lot of people use uh, oh i wanted to kill myself as kind of a shorthand to to describe their outsized reaction to something so apart from the way that he wrote about it in, in medium raw I, I it was to me never an indication that there was any serious intent behind it uh, it was just a, a a way to to really drive a point home yeah yeah, you know, when I went back and I went through his work after um, after he passed, I didn't realize just how much he actually did talk about things like that, but very tongue in cheek in a way, right? Yeah. So it was it was kind of like it seemed like the, the 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 humorous part of his personality would would come through on the way that he would see things, almost like the way a teenager would look yeah. at things. You know, everything had this dark, serious you know connotation to it. Um, in a way, do, do you think? Do you think in the, in his in his television career was he happy with what he achieved? Do you think he was happy with what he achieved? I think there were aspects of his career that he was very happy with and very proud of. I think the fact that his shows, both No Reservations and Parts Unknown, were were nominated consistently every year for multiple Emmys. I think that was a great source of pride for him and they won a number of times in various categories uh, uh cinematography writing series so i think that was a consistent source of pride for him he also won a peabody award uh for 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 parts unknown and i think that was a, a huge uh sense of accomplishment for him i think he was very happy at having assembled a team of incredibly talented and passionate and loyal uh, television production partners, uh, you know, yeah. producers, directors, editors, cinematographers, people who he often said could have left at any time and made a lot more money uh, doing other work. And they chose to stick around because they all believed in this common vision of, of creating really excellent television. So I think I think those were very uh, those were points of pride and points of happiness. I think that the physical toll that traveling that much took on him was increasingly a burden. And I think, and there's a chapter in the book that addresses the idea of the burden of leadership. And I think that was a, increasingly a source of conflict for him that he in some ways loved what he was doing and, and wanted to keep doing it, but also was very, very tired and very, in some ways sort of burnt out but felt a sense of responsibility to the people who had stuck around with him and all the many, many people whose livelihoods were dependent on the continuation of, of his work. I think that was a real source of conflict for him. So it was, uh, it was both a, a happy uh, situation and also a difficult and in some cases painful situation for him. Yeah. Well, you could, it was interesting because if you hadn't been paying attention to it, most people probably would have never noticed this. But if you'd have gone back and looked at his career from when it started, he had such an enthusiastic, almost giddy um, uh, attitude towards life when he first got the television show. And he was fun and he was light. He was excited, enthusiastic. And that started to change towards the end. Like it really started to have more of a darker turn to it. You know, there was almost a cynical part that was coming out of him. And I often wondered, was it like, did he, did, did he, because I mean, he used to say he traveled like 200 days a year. I mean, that's a crazy amount. I travel a lot, but I don't travel that much. And I, I know what a lot of travel will do to you. 
Um, but I started to wonder, like, I wonder if it was, was he looking for something in mankind? Um, I remember him talking about how disappointed he was at, uh, at two movies, um, uh, the old yeller and, and the red balloon in, in medium raw and how he felt like this was just a cruel joke on, um, children, right? Like they're supposed to get better. They're supposed to live, you know, what kind of craziness is this? And it was almost like, is there's this cynical part of him about, about mankind, about human beings, that he's looking for some kind of hope as he goes through all these different personalities and people and countries and the way people live. He really seems so very interested in the things that people had to say with almost without a judgmental perspective, no matter where in the world he was. Is, is, do I have that right? I think so. Yeah. You, you know, I think he was, he sort of contained two things at once where he was deeply cynical about humanity, about the human condition, about how we treat each other, how much uh, government can, can help people. Uh, and then I think he also was always looking for hope. He was, he was a deeply, deeply romantic person. And I think when you see him happiest on screen or when he's expressing the most happiness in writing, it was about when something actually lives up to that impossible romantic ideal or when he's experiencing a moment of pure pleasure, pure wonder or something that's new that he's never seen before. I, I think he, right up until the end, really retained that capacity to, to see amazing things, sometimes in a very small gesture or, or a, a plate of, of food or a, a piece of music or a piece of film. I, you know, um, there's, a, there's a documentary film that came out this summer called uh, uh, Roadrunner that was about his life. Uh, yeah. And that in some ways is, is really a very valuable companion piece to the book that I just published, uh, Bourdain, the definitive oral biography. There's a lot of similar themes in it. Um, and in the film, there's there's some footage from that was shot in Florence, Italy, not more than three weeks before he died. And he is ecstatically happy. He is making uh, a, a beautiful piece of, of television where they're shooting in the Uffizi Gallery. They've got this, you know, unprecedented access to these works of art and this and this space that doesn't really allow a lot of filming to take place. And you can see that he's just truly in the moment and he's enjoying it and he feels so lucky to be alive. So it's hard for me to say that, oh, he got, he did get increasingly cynical and increasingly weary, but he never uh, gave that, gave over completely to that until, you know, one could argue until the very end that he yeah. still was able to see uh, humor and beauty uh, all around him. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it seems like everywhere that I, that I've seen anybody talk about this, people tread very carefully on what happened with Ozzy at, at the end, but it seemed like he felt so terribly burned uh, by what she had done that it just took him over the edge, which he seemed so in love with her. Like, all the different episodes that she was in and the one that he let her direct. I mean, he, I've never seen him that way on television before. Like he was giddy with this person and only to have something else happen that he maybe didn't, maybe knew, maybe didn't know um, go public was, had to be terribly painful for someone. 
Yeah, you know, again, he was he was such a romantic, and and uh, I don't think he ever did any, anything by half measures. So whomever he was involved with romantically, it was a thousand percent all in, and he was incredibly effusive about his feelings about that person. And you see it in in the book all the way through. You know, his his intense devotion to his high school girlfriend, Nancy Bourdain, who, who uh, she was Nancy Pukowski and then became Nancy Bourdain. And, you know, he graduated high school early in order to follow her to college. And they, you know, they were together from the age of probably 14, 15, you know, all the way through to, to midlife. Uh, and he was just completely enamored of her. And then his second wife, wife, Atavia, the same thing. And that also comes up in the book where he was just completely besotted and, um, you know, it, it just, he, he wasn't a, a half measures guy. So it was the same at the end of his life in this last romantic relationship. He really, he, he, and he had at that point in his life, a much bigger platform on which to share these very, very intense and a hundred percent in all in feelings about this woman. So it was, uh, you know, it's, one can only speculate, right? Because we don't, we don't really know what was going through his mind in that, in that last, uh, hour or so of his life but I, yeah. I think he I think it's safe to say that he he was disappointed and and humiliated and and hurt and you know whether or not someone uses that as a justification to take their own life it's you know it's it's really up for discussion you know there's plenty of people who suffer heartbreak and humiliation who don't make that choice so I think it is uh, it's a very easy thing to say he was humiliated. He was heartbroken. He chose to end his life. And, and I think that is true. But I think there, uh, you know, in reading the book, you'll see there's there's a lot more nuance uh, to to all the factors that that led him to that last day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Why did you choose to write the book as an oral biography? What, what was the what was your thought behind that? Mm -hmm. So this book came out of a conversation between myself and Daniel Halpern, who's Tony's longtime editor and publisher at Echo, and also Kim Witherspoon, who was uh, Tony's literary agent and, and became my agent as well. Uh, we were sort of constantly talking in, in those early days and weeks after Tony's death about really, first of all, just checking in on each other. Uh, because this was such a devastating loss for all of us and for a number of people that had worked so closely with Tony. And one of the things that we discussed was what projects, I mean, there were a number of projects in the works, among them world travel, uh, certainly television and, and other projects. So it was what projects uh, do we go forward with? How, if at all, do we go forward with these things? And the idea of a biography came up pretty quickly because as you might imagine, with somebody of Tony's stature, there were all kinds of people coming out of the woodwork right away wanting to do a film, a book, a something in I response bet. to his death and just to sort of, you know, get to be first uh, to do to do something, which in some cases comes from a genuine place and in some places I think is a very cynical yeah. uh, uh, enterprise. And it's that's just sort of the the reality of of, of what it is. So the idea of a biography came up among us pretty quickly and the, the, the oral biography format versus a straight biography really reflects this, this way in which Tony told stories on television. And we wanted to kind of reflect that where he 
would ask people questions about their lives and then sit back and listen and let them tell their stories in their own words. Uh, in many, you know, in, in as many cases as possible without injecting any of his own uh, prejudices or understanding or in any of his own ego into the thing, really just letting people tell their stories. So it made a lot of sense to do a biography in this way versus a, a straight biography, which is a which is a very respectable format. And, and you know, people who do deeply researched and beautifully written biographies, I have a lot of respect for them. It's a very difficult endeavor. Uh, but for, for this case, we felt that the oral biography made the most sense. And Tony himself was a really gifted writer, wasn't he? Very much. That is, I think, at the heart of everything that he did. That is the reason. That is, that is how he escaped from the life of a chef and line cook was by being a writer. And television came as a as a you know not altogether obvious uh, outgrowth of of his work as a writer. Did his mother work for the New Yorker or, or New York, something like that, right? New York I mean, Times. New yeah. Times, New York Times, yeah. that's what it was. She was a long, Gladys Bourdain was a long time, I believe she had a 25 or 30 year career as a copy editor at the New York Times. Ah, okay. Interesting. That's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, did he ever say what he liked most about what he did? Was there one thing that really lit up his heart? About the about the world of television and, and the storytelling and and all these different individuals that he got to meet along the way. Mm. Uh, I I know that I, I don't know I can't say with any certainty that it was the most important or the best thing, but I know one thing he consistently would talk about that was such a joy for him was to be able to take his love of film and translate that into making television. There were so many episodes where you can see overt or maybe covert references to some of his favorite films, real homages to some of the greats. Uh, there was a South Boston episode of No Reservations that he did close to the end of the run of that show that was very much an homage to The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a great piece of uh, 70s uh, crime realism and also a, a fantastic novel in its own right. Um, in the back, actually in the index of world travel, I spoke to a number of, of the guys that made television with him and they talked about some of the, the influences, some of the specific episodes and the different film influences uh, that they worked with. In some cases, it was a shot by shot ripoff of, of films that they really loved, you know, and, and, and they weren't shy about it. You know, it was, yeah. it was not trying to hide the fact that they were uh, you know, working with the films of Eric Romer or Michael Mann or uh, certainly Wong Kar Wai was a huge influence on a lot of the work that they did, both in Asia and, I mean, there's a Buenos Aires episode that has nothing to do with Wong Kar Wai and his work in Hong Kong, but they, they, they took that aesthetic and that style and applied it to, to their work in Buenos Aires. So it's um, that, that, ability to take a, a lifelong love of film and apply it to his own work, I think was a consistent source of joy for him. In the movie that they made um, of his life afterwards, there was an interesting, I think there was something in that movie that, that probably shocked a lot of people, a lot of people didn't know, and that he was actually quite rough on the people that were around him. I mean, they basically said that he was an asshole at times, um, which 
which was which was interesting because that's not the person that the public knew. You know, can you speak to that at all? Like, what's your take of that? Sure. Well, you know, first I'd say that the if you read Kitchen Confidential and you see the way that he talks about about the sort of the way that waiters and cooks and chefs relate to each other, or or sometimes you know chef to cook or cook to cook, I, there is some evidence of the, you know, there is a roughness, there is a pirate ship mentality that I think he learned in kitchens and that in some ways carried on to, uh, to the way that he ran his, his television crew. So I don't think it's a total uh, shock to know that sometimes it was, it was tough love that really got the job done. Uh, you know, I, I think that Tony was very good at reading individual people and understanding what was going to motivate them, whether it was it was harsh feedback and, and harsh, you know, critique or whether it was a little bit of, uh, you know, iron fist in the velvet glove. Uh, and, and that was true with his television crew. There were there were some guys that 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 could take it. And in some ways, that was what the, they responded to best was yeah. a was a quasi abusive sort of dynamic. And in some cases that was, he knew that was not what was going to get the job done. Uh, there's some uh, people in the book in, in the biography that talk uh, about Tony's notorious uh, written feedback that he would give to editors and sometimes directors and producers and sometimes uh, pretty high up network executives about his feelings and thoughts about what had come out of say the first cut of an episode or the, just the general direction that things were going with, especially with network executives. So he could be famously scathing. I was always, and, and very, very funny. I mean, some of these notes and people would save them because they were so funny, even if they were getting, you know, completely reamed by him, yeah. you know, the creativity and the word choice and the phrases were so hilarious that they were worth, worth keeping. So you know, I was always very glad to not be on the receiving end of, of that vitriol. You know, I think in part because the stakes were lower in my job as his assistant. Uh, and, and I always tried to make sure everything was was completely right. But even in those rare cases where something went wrong and he felt the need to let me know, it was always with a very, very gentle touch. And I think because for me, he could read that, you know, reaming me out and screaming at me or being really harsh was was not going to uh, it's not going to help me do my job any better. Yeah. So it really, it, it became a personal thing, but it, yeah, it's of course. And there, I think there are even times one could argue that on television in certain scenes, they they're edited for comedy in a way that show him being harsh or disappointed or angry specifically in the, in the series, the layover, which was uh, something that he produced uh, while still at travel channel. So while he was still making no reservations there was this additional series that was much more service oriented and they really did, uh, you know, come in and, and shoot the whole thing in about 36 hours, which was incredibly grueling. And he, and he was pretty miserable a lot of the time because he was exhausted and he was eating seven meals a day and he was, you know, jet lagged beyond belief. So a lot of that anger and that frustration and that exhaustion plays for comedy, but was very um, genuine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Interesting. Did you, were you surprised um, when he literally started to get into um, the kind of the, 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 the sports arena uh, with his second wife? And, and I mean, the, the, 
enthusiasm in which he went after that. Um, I've heard Rogan talk about it several times. Like just, he was so into that thing. Was that, was that a surprise for everybody that he, that he went down that route? I think to an extent it was a surprise because that, you know, he hadn't lived his life in any way that one would consider athletic or even health oriented in any way. (laughs) It was, it was a a bit of a 180, but it, it made a lot of sense because of, his wife being so deeply invested in the sport. Uh, and then it made sense because he, whatever he did, whatever he chose, chose to spend his time on, again, it was, there was no, there were no half measures. So either he was going to do jujitsu a thousand percent like he did, or he wasn't going to do it at all. And, and I, I, you know, one could argue that this was another illustration of, of somebody who had a, addictive tendencies throughout his life. So whether it was heroin or work or romantic relationships or crack cocaine or jujitsu, uh, he was going to do it and per, pursue it in an, in, a, in an addictive way. And, and he certainly did. I, you know, and I think the better he felt from doing it, the, you know, physically he felt stronger, he felt uh, and, and there's that endorphin rush that just makes right. you feel mentally great, you know, when you've had a good workout. So the, the better he felt doing it, the more he wanted to do it. That's fantastic. What did you, what would you say that you learned from him? What was the best that you got out of him uh, in your career with him? Or maybe even after, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you've learned that you didn't expect to learn since all of this has happened with him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I will say that he was an extraordinarily generous employer and somebody who really, I think it was very important to him to, and I, I, he would probably cringe and hate this phrase, but I think it applies that he really was, uh, he embodied the spirit of paying it forward. Uh, I, I think he was very aware of his great good luck at being in the right place at the right time. Of course, when you're talented and you work hard, this, these instances of good luck and good timing seem to present themselves with more frequency and, and the payoffs are, are greater, but he was, his, his unlikely ascent into stardom was very much lightning in a bottle. And I think he, he never really lost sight of the fact that he got very, very lucky. There are lots and lots of people that are very talented writers that we're never going to hear about just because they weren't in the right place at the right time yeah. with the right thing for the zeitgeist, right? But he was. And so he was very aware of that and, and very, uh, because of it, I think was very willing to try and help other people whom he saw that had talent, but didn't have the access to the platform that he did. And I was certainly one of those people uh, where he knew I was a writer and, and had my own ambition beyond being an assistant. And he was really generous at giving me opportunities to do things beyond make restaurant reservations and doctor's appointments. Uh, and, and I, I always try and remember that in my own life. Not I'm not in a position to be handing out bonus checks or, or, you know, but if I can ever lift someone else up, that's got a, a book that I think is great, but doesn't have the platform that my books do because I'm aligned with a very famous person. I'm always, I always want to do that. I always want to try and bring people along or, or if I've got a little, an opportunity for, for, to, to give an interview. I, I just did an interview this morning where somebody asked, you know, what are you reading that, that people, or, you know, what have you read that, you think a lot of other people should read, but they haven't heard of, you know? And so I had, there's a, 
there's a book that I think is fantastic that I, that a friend of mine wrote that, that just didn't have the platform that I did. So I'm recommending it. And I'll recommend it here. Her name is what Alicia is Tobin. Uh, she's a comedian in, in Vancouver, Alicia Tobin. And she wrote a book called, so you're a little sad. So what? And it's essays, uh, really funny. I mean, she's a, she's a, such a hilarious comedian and they're essays about depression and anxiety and dogs and food and, uh, uh you know, childhood. And, uh, I found it very, very helpful at a dark time and I've recommended it to so many other people. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that, that Tony really showed me that, that, uh, the rising tide lifts all boats. Again, a cliche that he probably would roll his eyes at and, yeah, yeah. and disavow, but that's really the way that he, he lived his life. So I, and I, you know, I encourage other people to try and do the same, you know, we've all got gifts. We've all got uh, advantages and, and it, you know, the, it, it comes back to you tenfold if you give it away. Is there something that Tony cared about that, you think people would be surprised to know that he cared about? Uh, you know, one of the, one of the kind of most left field pieces of advice he gave me and he was dead serious. And again, this was a guy that, that, you know, apart from his jujitsu phase, didn't really orient his life around like optimum health, you know, yeah, 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 exactly. uh, but he one day was very, very serious. And he said, listen, I got to tell you, get the shingles vaccine. Like, uh, you know, I had shingles, and it was, it was so painful and so miserable. And there's this vaccine. You don't have to suffer like I did. Get the shingles vaccine. And it, wow. was, it was so out of character with, with, again, with how he lived his life. But I was like, okay, I will, you know, because if you're telling me, it must really be important, you know, because he was not, not going around giving health advice. So. Right. I, you know, that, that kind of thing. I mean, this was a guy that, that, you know, clearly was not afraid of needles, you know, uh, <laughs> had, a, had a heroin habit in the eighties. And then because of his, all of the travel that he did, you know, his, his travel vaccine card was, you know, it had like extra pages stapled onto it. So, uh, <laughs> in yeah, that way it was in keeping with him, but, it, but, all, but just to, to encourage somebody to do something proactive for their health was, uh, unexpected, but appreciated. Gotcha. That's interesting. Um, if you had to go back and do it again with him, what would you do different? Well, you know, when you lose somebody by suicide, there's, there's a lot of, uh, trying, you re-examining last conversations and, yeah. uh, it's difficult to say because, well, first of all, I can't, you know, there's, there's, there is no do over in this situation, but. Is there something you wish you had asked him, even if it has nothing to do with suicide or his death or what was bothering him? Like, mm -hmm. is there something that you wish you would have known about him that you didn't get a chance to know? That's a tough question too. You know, I, I, I will say that I, I think I would have, Knowing what I know now, I think I probably would have been less, you know, I'm very polite and I'm very, I'm always going to err on the side of uh, saying less and giving people a lot of space and not trying to uh, impose myself on them. Yeah. And, uh, and I think he appreciated that about me. I think it made it for a good working relationship, but I think knowing what I know now, I probably would have, um, I would have been a little, a, a little more emphatic in my 
uh, offers to to be a, a sounding board. And and I probably would have pushed a little harder, a little earlier for him to to look into to getting help. Now he did at the last in the last few months of his life. And I'm not saying anything that isn't already on the public record, but in the last few months of his life, he did start to see uh, a psychologist. And, um, you know, as somebody who really believes in therapy, I, I, and we did have that conversation a couple of times, you know, and I would say, have you, have you thought about therapy, you uh, know, in, in a way that I felt was appropriate and didn't breach the, the con- sure. you know, professional relationship. And he always would say, Eh, it's not for me or it's too late for me or, you know, I've tried it and it sucks or, you know, he always had a, a, a deflection. Um, so I might've, I might've been a little more uh, emphatic about it early on or just slipped him a couple of names and numbers, but um, right. you know, that wasn't the way that we related to each other, you know? And, and I think he was really good at keeping people at bay. And I think everyone around him knew, you know, you, you can only push so far and this, this is a guy who will cut people out of his life if he feels that he's being kind of boxed in. So if I thought that being a little more uh, mother hen with him would have helped, I, I would have done it. But at the time, it seemed like a, a path to just pissing him off. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely seemed like the kind of guy that had a line that you couldn't mm-hmm. cross. Like mm-hmm. if you did that, there was a price. If, mm-hmm. if you did that, I mean, that seemed very apparent that he was familiar with boundaries in, in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's next for you? I mean, first of all, thank you for, for, for all from the bottom of my heart for doing this because it really, it, 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 it brought closure. You know, your, your books brought closure. Um, the movie brought closure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I think that it was a real shock to, to people that really loved and adored him. He brought, I don't know that he knew the light that he brought into people's lives. I mean, it was so different than anything else that was on television. And it had, it had such an air of authenticity about somebody who was deeply introspective about many different things in the world. So, so thank you for continuing that, but what's next for you? Uh, so I am working on a, a book about bread, which has nothing to do with Tony or, or any of this. And it's been kind of a nice uh, change of pace. There's a baker called Richard Hart, who's British, uh, but he spent about six years in California as the head baker at Tartine in San Francisco. And then he went on to open his own place under the umbrella of the Noma Group in Copenhagen called Hart Bakery. Uh, and he's a brilliant, funny uh super, super talented baker. And so we're writing together, writing this book about bread uh, that we hope is the next sort of essential um, sourdough reference. Uh, So working on that, and then I have a couple of other projects that are very early going uh, involved uh, mostly with television. So one is a scripted series and one is a, uh, is sort of a documentary uh, travel style thing. So, um, you know, early, early going, but drawing on my experience with Tony and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that both of them will, will see, uh, we'll find a home on television. That's very cool. That's very cool. Congratulations to you. And um, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was, it was, it was, it was very um, enlightening for me to be able to kind of, well, I mean, from a selfish perspective, it it kind of puts some things to rest for me. You know, it, it really does. And, I know that most of the people that I know really adored him. They really did adore him. It was a, it was really a special place in people's hearts for what he brought. And, you know, like 
I'm about the same age as, as Tony. Um, most of my friends that watched him as we went through our adulthood, there was almost this fantasy aspect of, oh, maybe we should go there. Let's put this on our list to go here. You know, he took us to places that we possibly wanted to see or visit or create goals in our life. So that was also a very interesting thing about him. Anyway, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you for your work. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Take care now. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.